Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show today. Today we are speaking with Joe Telestos. Joe is a peer coach and we're going to talk about getting to the why of addiction. This is a super vulnerable, raw, real episode and like literally some of my favorite conversations that I love to have and bring to the show because we get to have the connections and conversations with people who are actually walking through their story and turning around and sharing it with you. So Joe suffered from multiple addictions, including opioids, alcohol, and others for more than over 20 years, mainly due to undiagnosed mental health conditions, including bipolar disorder 2, severe depression, anxiety, and adult ADHD. Joe voluntarily entered an inpatient treatment center in November of 2008 and has been in recovery ever since then. Prior to getting well, he spent more than 35 years in the broadcast media industry as an Emmy Award winning program director, on-air talent and talent coach. Joe started as a peer coach in 2017. In that time, he has helped hundreds of people from all walks of life find lasting wellness from addiction. He's learned a number of important lessons along the way and continues to share them with his members. He's experienced as a coach and a peer in a place where highly creative talent, mental health, and addiction intersect. In this episode, he openly shares his story with you. And I I think this is really powerful because you're seeing it through the lens of somebody who's actually walked through it. We know that addiction can affect so many people that it directly touches. I feel honored that we get to have this conversation with somebody who is giving you firsthand experience of what this journey is like. In this episode, Joe shares the importance of going slow to go fast. Sometimes we are being asked to slow down, to tap in, to feed ourselves, to take care of ourselves first, and none of it is a sign of weakness. He shared that we have a current epidemic of loneliness, feeling as though we are lacking connection, not belonging or fitting in, and we're not nearly as powerless as we think we are. I love this episode. I am so grateful for this connection with Joe and for being able to bring his story to the rest of you to be able to hear it. So I know you're going to love it. Welcome to the show today, Joe. I had to hit record because I knew we were just going to miss out on too much if I didn't. Absolutely. Let's have Joe, at it. Joe, what yes. is your last name? My name is Joe Telustis, uh, and I am an, a, a peer addiction management coach at a place called Face It Together. And we're based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, with an office in uh, Colorado Springs. And, and uh, so far, we've, uh, thank you, Zoom, 
uh, that we uh, have helped people in all 50 states, three Canadian provinces, the UK, Spain, New Zealand, and I learned today, Ireland. We have somebody new coming in from Ireland. So, oh my gosh, you just blew me yeah. away. I did not realize you were in, like, you're, so you're supporting, you said three Canadian provinces? You, mm-hmm. It's amazing because I I don't know how many resources are actually available in Canada. And I realized that that is, um, maybe it's an outdated claim, but I know we were in this process of looking for a long time. And mm-hmm. I, I was shocked at how little was available. Shocked, like absolutely blown away how little was available in Canada. Well, and that that's why, um, you know, technology, you know, if, if there was an upside of COVID and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and that's not to take anything too, uh, too lightly is that, uh, it forced people into situations where, uh, even, even grandpa and grandma learned how to use mm-hmm. tools like zoom. And when you open up that world, when you have people are comfortable on one end and people are comfortable on the other, uh, it's, you know, it's when they're looking for a particular thing or maybe the things that they have looked at traditionally from an addiction, mental health standpoint, uh, aren't, it, it, it hasn't been a fit. You know, they've tried all these other things. All of a sudden, you know, we pop up on Google and that's where a lot of it starts. And yeah, just when you think you've, uh, you know, that your parochial little outfit, all of a sudden you got, you're talking to people all over the world and, and and also shows just how common the stuff we'll talk about today really is and how universal it is. I think that's the key thing I was just going to say is how it is far more common than what people want to know. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think I think so many of us know that it's common, but we don't want to know how common or how close to home it hits. And I always say, you know, it's we talk about like the six degrees of separation. I, I'm I'm literally two degrees. Every time I interview somebody, even if they don't have that story, they'll immediately, you could see it in them. They're like, it's my brother. It's my sister. It's my parent. It's my child. It's like, you don't have to go far to connect to somebody who is dealing with mental health addiction and all of the behaviors and things that go with that, because it really is, it, it's not an isolated person that is impacted. It really does impact so many people around. So we're going to dive into that and your story. I want to know, um, share your full first last name and the story you share with me before I hit record. Cause I love that. Oh, sure. Um, my, uh, my name is, is Joseph Brian Telustis <laughs> and it's not a common name. It's a, a Bohemian name from the old country of what was Bohemia part of Germany, part of, part of what's the Czech Republic. Um, and it is, I've met, I'm, I'm 62 years old mm-hmm. and in my lifetime, I have met one person face to face that has my last name that I'm not related to. And I've talked to one other on the phone and that's it in 62 years. So wow. it's, it's not a common name and it's one of those, it's one of those Bohemian Czech names that have a whole bunch of consonants and not enough vowels and nothing's in the right place. And you know, it, you just kind of guess, guess about it from there. I was in the radio business for 35 years and, uh, started, did my first show when I was 17 and when, when I was in high school on weekends just for fun, uh, never thought of it as a career was probably into my mid thirties before I even started thinking that, you know, maybe this is what I'll be doing for a while. 
Um, and I'd already had uh, a, fir- a full-time job in the business while I was going to college and using my real name. And then all of a sudden I showed up in my first go around in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, the news director there, I was, I was, I was filling in as a, as a news reporter said, uh, okay, y'all set. You're on the air in 15 minutes. Yep. All right. I said, Oh, by the way, lose the name. It's too hard to pronounce. So I'm going, okay, here we go. Uh, I have, I have 15 minutes. I don't have the best memory. I'm already afraid of like throwing out four different sets of call letters of stations that I've been on that sometimes would jump out from the past. And whatever I pick, I'm stuck with for as long as I'm there. And the only thing I can think of was my middle name's Brian, so I can be O'Brien. And little did I know that was in 1984. And I used that name until the year 2006. Uh, and then when I, when I wasn't on the air, uh, I moved into more of a management coaching, uh, talent development role. Uh, then I could go back to using my real name again. And, uh, so yeah, it was, I always used to joke that, uh, especially one of the stations I worked in was in St. Paul, Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And St. Paul is a very Irish, uh, uh, as a big Irish heritage there. So I always used to joke that St. Patrick's Day was more fun for me uh, when they're with the name of O'Brien. Uh, but also that led into a lot of different things, which are why you and I are talking today about, you know, there's an idea of that some things are fun and some things are not fun and some things are an absolute nightmare. Yeah. Uh, when you're dealing with, with things or, or even trying to figure out what's going on and why do I seem to be so much different? And am I really that different? Oh, uh, there's some yeah. questions there that that's. So you worked in the radio industry for how many years total? About 35. Okay. So about 35 years. How, and with your own story, your own personal story of struggle and challenge, how many of those 35 years were you working through this before you started to maybe start to look and understand or question like, where am I at? What is like, is this how I'm supposed to feel? Is this okay? Like, is this affecting my life? Right. Because we Mm -hmm. also know that many people can function. I say function loosely, but Mm -hmm. function dealing with mental health and addiction for long periods of time before all of a sudden it, 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 it really then starts to implode. So I'm just curious in your journey what that looked like. Absolutely. Um, when I was in probably my early 20s, well, even even before that, because I I had a lot of anxiety when I was high school age. Mm-hmm. Um, now I now I will I will tell you one thing that kind of put things in context. So most people measure time uh, with like in BC and AD, BC and AD. Mm-hmm. I measure time in in BC and AC of growing up in a small egg based farm town in Southeast Minnesota. So BC and AC before cable and after cable, because you could be very sophisticated, semi-worldly, mm-hmm. uh, well-traveled, well-educated and about a lot of things and be absolutely in the dark on others because they were things that were not talked about in your family or in your community. These are things, the words mental health to use together 
was not part of anything that I even heard or talked about or, and for goodness sake, didn't apply to myself till I was probably in my early forties. Um, when I look back, I'm going, okay, this explains a lot as what was going on. But the one thing I did know in, in my, about my starting in college years and, and going forward was that my head never felt right. I always felt like I was like about an eighth of a turn off and I couldn't really explain it, but it was like, that just wasn't quite, it's not like I didn't quite have both feet on the ground. Um, but when you're that age and when you're in that situation, all you know about life and experience is what you're experiencing. And, uh, and it, I was at a point in my life that I would say, well, why would I be different from anybody else? Everybody must be a nervous wreck every day. Everybody must have these periods where you are just down and out and feeling worthless. And other days when you're just going, you know, turn the volume down a little bit because I'm going too fast. Um, why would I think that I was any different from that? And, uh, and I found out two things along the way that, uh, there's a wide range of things that people go through. Uh, yet at the same time, what I'm doing is more common than I thought. So, you know, putting that into perspective and going, okay, this is who I am. This is where I am. This is where I sit on the continuum took a long, long time. And, uh, I did discover that I had a couple things, fantastic coping skills to my detriment. I could put up with a lot. Uh, and number two, without really knowing it, I started experimenting with all kinds of different substances and not putting two and two together that, okay, if this made me feel a little better at a certain time, and this is all illicit, you know, off the radar kind of stuff. Um, and then it would kind of feel better for a while. And then I wouldn't feel better for a while. And, but I was like, okay, everybody must be like this. So just buck up little mister and, 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 uh, you know, deal with it, find a way to deal with it. Um, when I finally came to the realization that maybe, you know, as I learned more, as I, I was out in the world more and things started to be talked about a little more, then I started to kind of look inward and go, Hmm, I wonder what, what's going on here. And I worked in an industry that as I look back, um, had very dynamic individuals and they could be one thing one day and another thing the next, the things that made them talented and creative and wonderful on air made them an absolute management nightmare mm -hmm. off the air. And you didn't know exactly which one it was going to show up at any particular time. So it was, it was this idea that. You know, it wasn't concepts and we can talk about concepts, things I've learned and things that I pass along in my coaching, uh, career now are not hard concepts to understand. It's just that they never got on the radar because it was nothing that you talked about. And if you did have the self awareness at a point to talk about it, you could either go, I don't know enough about it to talk about it, or I know too much about it and I don't want other people to know about it. Or, you know, dot, dot, dot. Or there are days when you were just totally oblivious and you're running around in circles and your mind is racing all over the place and you're just trying to do the best with what you have uh, and you're not getting anywhere. 
So, you know, it's a million things. But you do find out that, boy, we got lots and lots of company. Tons oh. and tons of company. So much company. I It almost feels like it's this, thank you for sharing everything with us there. It mm-hmm. feels almost like it's this perfect storm that happens. You come from a small area where, and, and a time in society where we don't talk about anything. Like mm-hmm. I... I actually grew up with the whole, like, we fake everything. It was just, you you shove it all down. No one is to know that we're struggling. Mm-hmm. And it was just, a, that was what was normal. And then you go from that to an environment in working where it's like such a variety of dynamic energy and people that that becomes normalized. And now maybe substances come in there during that time and it starts to become part of what you see. Like, this is what you see. This is what you're doing. And it normalizes everything. So where, when you, if you could even think back in the beginning, um, when you did start to like use anything, how did it support? Like, how did you feel like, okay, you said take the edge off or did it help you with anxiety? Like, I'm just curious in the beginning. How, because it, a lot of times what happens, especially when we're dealing with addiction, it creeps in, in ways that it's like, I didn't even expect that to happen. And mm-hmm. we all know somebody, we all do, and we've all experienced it in some way, shape or form because everybody has some kind of active addiction. Let's just say that we mm-hmm. all have addictive type personalities in some way, shape or form, but all of a sudden we use something, we do something, we have a habit that gives us a reward and helps us to feel better. And before we know it, that can become something of a norm. So I'm just curious what the beginning stages were like for you and when it became on the radar that mm, this is not working. I th- the first thing that kind of manifested itself, and I could think back into elementary school, was uh, anxiety, mm-hmm. and especially performance anxiety. Um, I have some mu- had some musical abilities, and and could sing and play and do different things, and and uh, you know, and anytime you're in a in a small town and you're a young man, <laughs> and there are many that step up. I was in high demand for these things. Uh, and I would practice and feel great and not a problem. And then I would get in front of a gymnasium and full of, you know, about a thousand people and I would lock up. And so when it came time to do certain things, it, it was fighting anxiety. So it would be something that would, you know, if I, if I found something that would make me settle down, uh, that would help me to focus a little bit because I still have uh moments where I can tell myself that I'm getting a little wound up that I need to, you know, back it down a little bit. But it it was, you know, it was during those times and and you learn pretty quickly to put on a happy face. How it manifested at first was dealing with that anxiety. Then um there were then came the uh swings when uh, you had those feelings of worthlessness or I, you know, it's like I walk out of work and I go and I guess I fooled him again, you know, another day, not really having confidence in my own ability that, you know, it was like, I'm, I'm kind of walking through a minefield and trying not to step on anything. Um, the time when it really came into focus and, and if we have time for a story, I of course um, I have time. Yep. Okay. Um, I was about 20. 
and I was doing a morning show, morning radio show here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which I'd never planned on doing. My college degree is in, in business and economics and, and, uh, management labor relations, which is funny because I, I, I do use it all the time. Um, but I, I've always been a person who never, I have never had a plan. And, you know, there are some people walking around that they say they have these things called goals. It's kind of a mystery to me because <laughs> I'm, I'm not that person. Um, there are destination people who have a focus where they want to be, where they want to go. I'm not that guy. People say, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, the only thing I can say for sure is I'll be five years older if I'm still alive. Other than that, I don't know because it's the journey that's interesting and it's the opportunities that came up during the journey that were interesting. And that's how I, I, I left the radio business five times before my, on my, of my own accord, uh, because I thought, well, okay, this has been fun. Now it's time to grow up and get a real job. And, um, and that's how it was when I came, you know, I got out of college, unemployment's 10%. Uh, you know, it, there are no jobs to be had and it really didn't matter because I didn't know what I wanted to do anyway. So I started working in, in radio again. Uh, and pretty soon, you know, you find yourself, well, well, pretty soon it's a part-time job into a full-time job into all of a sudden, do you want to do a morning show? So, um, I was, I ended up being a very public person. And, and I will say that there was a difference between when I was in a studio and when I was out in public, I could go do a radio show right now in a studio. I could do it in five minutes. Um, there was a time when getting in front of a group of people and you wouldn't think that those skills would be that much different, but they're a lot different. They're very different because you have people in front of you who are giving you immediate feedback. Um, in any case, back in the, this is back in the days in the early eighties where stunts were popular. We were also a very community focused deal. So we did a lot of fundraising activities and, and what have you. And, and I was young and a team player. And while I had the little voice in my head, which was pretty accurate about this is not a good idea, I just didn't listen to it very much. And uh, we were invited to participate in a fundraising event known as Donkey Basketball, which if you've never heard of it, it is as silly as it sounds. Um, there would be a guy who came from northern Wisconsin, uh, and to say he looked creepy, is an understatement. Comes into town, pulling a trailer with 12 donkeys in it, brings 10 of them out onto a gym floor. Uh, and in this case, it was a fundraiser for the high school wrestling team boosters. And so there were five of us from the radio station and five teachers from the school. And you're supposed to get on these donkeys. And then the donkey master, he just what I call him. Cause I don't know what, I don't really know what you'd call him otherwise. Um, and he had a little riding crop in his hand, like a jockey would have on a horse. But he, he had trained, these donkeys were trained enough that he could just kind of tap them on the, you know, on the rear left or rear right or whatever. And they would know to stop or start or turn or do whatever. So he's always kind of running around and, you know, and we're me, I'm just trying to stay on the thing, uh, even when it's standing still. And somebody told me later that at some point the, uh, Riding crop went away, and the battery-powered cattle prod came out. And apparently I had been selected by this gentleman as the comic relief. Because all I know is all of a sudden, 
my donkey takes off and it's like gallop, gallop, buck. And I went flying. I went oh. flying through the air. Now, this is before anybody really knew the word of liability. Um, had I known, I probably would own donkey basketball today. Um, but, you know, here I am. Uh, I land on the floor. It makes a terrible noise. Uh, and part of it is I, is I hit my head. But the head sounded worse than it really was. But but I hurt my back. Mm-hmm. And actually, and that has stuck with me for several parts of my life. And and one of them was is is my donkey basketball playing for the night was over. Uh, and I said, I think I need to go to the emergency room. So I did. And at the emergency room is where I got my very first Demerol shot. And it was like all of a sudden that eighth turn in my head that was that was there. Bang, I was just right on. And it's like, where have you been all my life? It made me feel normal. And or whatever I imagine normal to be. Um, And I'm going, this is fantastic. I'd experimented with all kinds of things and nothing ever made me feel like this. And for the next month, six weeks, it was the best thing in the world. I felt like a million bucks. Um, and then I ch- chased it for the next 20 years along with other things, trying to get back that feeling of, I felt normal for a moment. I felt what I perceived to being as normal. I was confident. I was relaxed. And of course, after you go along for a while, you're anything but that. Um, because now you're chasing something that you're never going to see again. It's the funny thing. As I look back now, I'm going, well, that should have, you, your radar should have gone off that, that something was wrong here. But an analogy I use is let's say you're walking down the sidewalk and you trip on the sidewalk and you fall and you break your arm and you look at your arm and it's a bad break. It's a compound fracture. There's blood everywhere. It hurts like a son of a gun. And it's like, oh my goodness, I just broke my arm. I know what to do. I need to get to the emergency room as soon as I can. Okay, there's a logical process. I took it all in. I felt the pain. I looked. I saw the visual evidence. I went into my Rolodex and figured, okay, this is what you do when this happens. What happens when, you know, you apply logic at these times out of your brain. What happens if it's your thinker that isn't working correctly? And it's kind of like a computer where, you know, the old garbage in, garbage out. If you, if you're a person who has been rewarded in life for being a problem solver, somebody who can anticipate, somebody who can think their way through difficult situations, it's real easy to start thinking that you can think your way through anything. But what happens when it's your thinker that's out of whack? Whatever answers that you come up with on what will be what seemed like a good idea at the time to try to do the right thing may or may not be accurate because what you're taking in, the information you're taking in and what you're doing with it may not be an accurate process. So I went through tons of things and it's kind of a punchline sometimes that, you know, somebody will say, well, why did you do such and such? It seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, and most of the people that I know myself and most people I run into are not bad people. No. They're not looking to hurt other people. They're not looking to make trouble. 
they're just trying to make sense of a situation. Or if you were like in, in my case, as a world-class worrier that I was trying to fix everything. And so I was taking in things the best I could. I was processing it the best I could. I was coming out with the solution the best I could. And I had no idea how far off I was because all I knew was what I knew. All I knew was what I had experienced. I didn't even think of the words mental illness. I didn't even know they existed. And, and frankly, I never applied them to myself until I was in my early 40s. I'm running a radio station in Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, at the top of my game. And um, uh, a good friend, also on the management team, said, hey, have you ever been checked out for mental illness? Thanks. And I'd say no. And he, and he was nice enough and kind enough and assured enough to share his story. And so that's when I first open it was open to the fact i wasn't scared of it mm-hmm. it had just never entered it had never entered my mind mm-hmm. um and then from on there's other stories i can tell about from that point forward um but i mean there was a stretch in there from when i'm in my very early 20s to my early 40s where i'm just going absolutely wide open full speed having a great deal of success um never missed a day of work never was always top performer i i moved up the ladder in the chain to the point where i was probably one of the top five or six talk radio programmers in the country um and every day i'm an absolute on fire nervous wreck but nobody knew because i i had coping up to a certain point my coping skills were excellent until they weren't until they weren't until i blew blew past Thank you so much for sharing that story. There's so many pieces of that that just really hit home. Um, mm-hmm. Because as I listen to it, right, this we really need to change the face of what we think it looks like for somebody who struggles with mental health or addiction. Mm-hmm. And you, we have this belief. I say this is a very big blanket statement, but this belief that it's like the homeless person that we see on the street. And that's like a, it, it, itsy bitsy tiny fraction of what we're, what we're talking about. And people can be very high functioning and actually like doing very well. If you're looking in from like the outside in and thinking like they've got it, they're right in their, their zone of genius. They're doing all these things, but we can't see how, you know, you're almost like you said, you're feeling like you're being pulled apart completely. And it's a lot of energy to try and maintain oh. that front. I think that's a big piece of Unbelievable it. Unbelievable amount of energy just to get your feet on the ground in the morning. Yeah. But it's all you know. Yep. It's what you've known since you started paying attention to such things. And it's gone and back to the thing of why, why would I think that I'm different from anyone else. They must have these same things going on. Maybe I'm just not dealing with them as well as they are. And on the outside, uh, I mean, it, it was, a, it was amazing when I finally made the decision later in my late forties to go to treatment was the number of people who had no idea what was going on with me because I was that good of an actor. And had I known I was that good of an actor, I would have gone to Hollywood or more likely Toronto today. 
<laughs> so it's where I would have gone. Um, because I never knew because I never I always showed up. I always answered the bell. I never missed a day of work. I was always there. I was corroding from the inside out mm-hmm. and not really understanding why that job is a job in the Twin Cities was I walked away from that job and you don't walk away from that job uh, because the money is ridiculously good. And when that job was fun, it was the most fun I have ever had. Um, And usually you hang around until they literally carry you out the door and throw you on the sidewalk. All I knew, even at that time, and this is after I've started working with a physician and everything else, the only thing I knew for sure was I felt my life shortening. I hadn't put two and two together on much of any kind of a level, but I knew something wasn't right. And I had that feeling that if I kept doing things the way I was doing them, it was not going to end well. So I walked away uh, thinking that, okay, now I'll come into the second part of my life, the fabled second career, something that's totally different from what I've done before. Well, I didn't have any better idea of what I wanted to do next than I did when I was 15 or when I was 25 or today. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. It's not that it's not that life hasn't been hasn't been interesting because it's been way interesting, and I wouldn't trade a whole bunch of it uh, for anything. But it it's just it's it you think you are rewarded and patted on the head when you come up with creative solutions to really difficult problems, and part of you starts to believe that you can think your way through anything. And but when it's your thinker that isn't working right. It can take some very strange, awful term, uh, turns with nothing but love and the best of intentions. It's just that it's what's coming in and what's turning around and coming out. You look back, you look down, and you say, man, I, how did I get there? How did I, how did I get there? This wasn't part of the plan, you know, and it was just the, the strangest journey, and it, it took a long, long, long time before I found the right people that helped me through that when things started to make sense. There's there's so much in what you're saying right now that is really hitting and is really powerful. And one of the things that I just want to share how it's connecting with me is this piece that like I am an NLP trainer, so neurolinguistic programming understanding how our brain works, et cetera. And one of the biggest aha moments for me has always been that you can't outmuscle a limiting belief. If you're a thinker, if I love how you call it a thinker and I love this, but if your your brain is is programmed, right? We we actually are the programmers. We don't realize that, mm-hmm. but we are. Mm-hmm. And so we are in this space that we have this program running all the time, like 24 seven, it's running and running. And we are in the space of wanting to create change. And so we're pushing hard, trying to muscle our way through it. Again, putting the face on, not showing that it's an issue or a problem. And really it comes down to that programming, that thinker, how are we using ourselves? Like we are literally, and I believe this, not just in this case, I think that the biggest demon we are always challenging is ourselves. It is Mm -hmm. is ourselves. We are facing it ourselves and coming to a space of saying, okay, this is not working. Like my way is just not working. I don't know the answer, 
but I'm open and willing to looking for something else. And as you just said, it took you a while to try and find a solution or people or connections that were giving you the source of support that you needed to create change. And I think that's another mistake that a lot of us have made in the sense that, well, I tried that and it didn't work. I mean, I went really tough time in my life and I probably went through four or five different counselors and those first four or five, sorry, were absolutely horrific. Like absolutely not even terrible. It's terrible. Horrific is an understatement. And I, I remember at one point going like, this is a joke. Like I can't even imagine getting this kind of, I just don't know where to get support. And I actually called like a crisis hotline, found a crisis counselor And with crisis counseling, they had like 15 minutes intervals. And that might sound like, oh, that's not my kind of thing. But for me, I didn't have time to sit on a couch and talk about all of my feelings because I was actually living in crisis that I couldn't do anything with. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so grateful that I kept going because I found that crisis support in the moment. So I love how you shared that because I, I know so many people, and myself included, I've done it. But we quit when we can't find what we're looking for. And we're like, okay, I guess this is just who I am. And this is what I'm going to have to deal with. And so as you started to, um, I, you made that decision to walk away from your job. Do you remember what that deciding moment was that it's like, I can't do this anymore? Well, I'll, I'll take a couple steps back. When my colleague came to me and said, you might want to get checked out. And I was always open, I was open to anything. Um, but I, there's, you look back and you're going, okay, how did I justify that? Or how did I think that that was a good idea? Um, uh, I normally, I'm, I'm the kind of person who, if I'm going to buy a used car, I will research it for about two years. I will look into it. I will, I will learn all kinds of things. When it came time for me to go see a professional to get some help, my uh, the deciding uh, criteria was I could walk from my office to her office. Not exactly a thorough vetting of of what's going on, but what did I know? Mm-hmm. You know, I I had done this before. Um, the justification that goes on in your mind. Uh, Part of it's part of it's programming too, I, I think, because, and I and I see this all the time, and it's it's a it, it's something I run into with clients now in in my coaching that uh, I, I I take into consideration, and that is number one, uh, how what how are we raised with uh, ideals of who we are, quote unquote, supposed to be. And I deal with a lot of a lot of men, and I've I've men and women clients, but I deal with a lot of men. Well, what are men taught to do in the Western world? Solve it yourself. Don't whine about it. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Uh, be the strong, silent type. Uh, rub some dirt on it. Carry on. Uh, and for gosh sakes, don't talk about anything with anybody especially having to do with feelings because it will be a sense of it will be it will be taken as weakness every single bit of that is wrong every single bit of that is the opposite of what you should be doing but that's how you're raised mm-hmm. think about how we are raised with uh the idea of physicians um i grew up 
uh, not far from Rochester, Minnesota, which is home to the Mayo Clinic, which is, and I lived there actually as an adult and did radio there for 14 years. Um, you can't, you know, you, you can't throw a, a rock without hitting a physician or a, or a nurse or someone. And, and they're actually quite good, but we, we are taught to go. Physicians are smarter than we are and they are professionals. We're, we're here to, we're looking for their help and they must know better than me. And if it's not fitting, uh, the problem must be mine. Because why in the world would you go to somebody and I go, I don't think this is working? Because that would be grossly impolite, right? Right. When in essence, and what I tell clients now is, is stop for a moment, turn it around. You're going to see a doctor because you're looking for help. And in fact, you're hiring expertise as part of the mix of things that 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 go in. You're hiring expertise. Um. And the thing you don't think about at the beginning is the power of connection. Connection is a huge word in, in my life. Um, connection in many ways is everything. Mm-hmm. It's if we always say about this about addiction, the, the, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Hmm. Because two of our biggest problems, especially if you're, I always say this because I'm, I'm not afraid to say I'm a smart person to a degree. I'm a smart person who's made a lot of dumb choices at various times in my life, but I didn't do it on purpose. I, if anything, I overthought things. And still, if left to my own devices, I have been known to still do that from time to time. But, um, we're, we're just not, we're not built to, challenge certain things and when you go when you talk about what is really a nightmare of finding a counselor or a psychiatrist or whomever you know is part of your team and i use the word team a lot that it's amazing how many hoops you'll jump through trying to fit with someone else rather than understanding that connection is a magical thing when you have somebody who understands what you're talking about, how you're feeling, uh, who has been through similar things. And I think that is, you know, one of the things that is appealing to many people of being in a peer situation. Cause it's like you've ever tried to, to, uh, describe, you know, describe depression for me, describe this, describe that. Sometimes it's very difficult to come up with words because it's a feeling. Uh, but when you're with somebody who has been through those things, you don't need words. All you need is one of these. Well, you can like, see that. Like I, I every time, yeah. It's like I'm nodding I get my it. head. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a time of we have an epidemic of loneliness in this world. We spend entirely often too much time by ourselves. Technology is a blessing and a curse. Oh, it's both. It it allows that to happen. Um. A smart person who is bored and isolated is looking for trouble, whether they know it or not. Um, we don't, even the most introverted amongst us, don't do well when we don't connect with other people. It's fundamental. It's as much, I think, as 
air and water and everything else is connecting with other people. And uh, some people are much more natural at connecting. Some, uh, you know, it's like the, the the introvert and extrovert world. And I don't know if this is right. This is kind of how I explain it now when I talk to people. I don't, uh, it's introversion and extroversion in, in my mind to make it workable is what do I need to do to recharge my batteries? How am I belt? Um, the extrovert recharges their batteries by being very social, being with other people. Um, and if they don't have that, they're not going to be at their best. The introvert, uh, needs some alone time, mm-hmm. not all alone time, but you need some alone time to recharge those batteries so that when you get into those things in life where you need to be social, you have the energy to do it. Um, if an introvert is not given a chance to have their alone time, um, they, you know, a lot of bad things can happen. Crankiness, snarkiness, um, just, you know, deep diving your, diving deeper into your isolation because you just start going, I just don't, I don't have what I need right now to deal with anybody or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and we drive down and down and down. It's connection that is a starting place, I think. And, and that is not only with your spouse or your friends or your coworkers, or the professionals that you work with, um, that, you know, I mean, you've seen the nightmare and I talk to people, I talk to clients about this all the time. When I first went to see, um, my first psychiatrist, um, she immediately prescribed a bunch of medications and, um, and I soon found out kind of what the drill was on a lot of them. It's like, okay, you need to take these for, you need to ramp up for a certain period and then, you know, live for about a month and then come see me again. And if it's been working great, if it's not, well, maybe we'll change the dosage or maybe we'll change the, the, uh, the medication, which means we need to ramp down and then take the new medication and ramp back up and then come see me in 30 days. And that may happen over and over and over again, totally missing the fact that it's like, doc, I'm hanging on by my fingernails every day doing this a month may not seem like a lot but a day is a month for me mm-hmm. and and how easy is it for somebody to say they'll take a medication that takes you know to build up in a bloodstream and i'm not a doctor but just what i've been through and you take it for three days and and you don't feel good well yeah because you're, you're taking a powerful medication that's going to over time be changing things and so somebody will say, I didn't like the way it made me fail, so I, I stopped taking it. Mm-hmm. Or I went to a counselor, and I just didn't connect with them. So in, in their mind, counseling doesn't work for me. Whereas in reality, that particular relationship doesn't work for you. There isn't that level of connection there. But this is all pretty advanced stuff when you're hitting it for the first time. Plus, I, the justification that can go on in your head. Again, sometimes, you know, you're, you're too smart for your own good. Mm-hmm. Um, I, For instance, I could justify anything. I rode motorcycles for years. I rode 8,000 miles a year. I traveled across the country 
I think of all the times that I was under the influence of any number of things driving really fast. Uh, I should be dead 10,000 times. Yeah, all I am is lucky. All I am is lucky. Um, but it was, it's, it's during that process where I, I went, okay, I looked at the, the bottle of the medication because, and, uh, and it said, do not take with other drugs and alcohol. In my mind, it wasn't like I was looking for an excuse, but how it processed was it wasn't like, okay, this is a dangerous combination. I looked at it more like a serving suggestion. How I got there today, I can't tell you. But in my mind, it made sense. And I think of I kept doing, I t- started taking these powerful medications, and I kept doing everything else I was doing before. Alcohol, marijuana, opiates, anything. Mm-hmm. And why did I do those things? Because my thinking was, think of your body and your mind as a car, okay? And your car is not running well. In reality, your your car is not running well because some parts are not are broken here or are not operating the way they're supposed to. My perception was, nah, it has nothing to do with parts up here. What what I need is higher octane gasoline. Because if I have higher octane gasoline, I will increase my performance and I can do things twice as fast and do twice as much. And of course, it doesn't work. You know, you put higher octane through this engine, which already has problems, and it's going to blow up. But if if I had a dollar for every time I've said, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, um, I would be a very, very rich man. Because none of it, everything seemed to make sense. Mm -hmm. Looking back, none of it made sense. No. and no, and sorry, and that's like that's the piece of it is that it's like when you're in the thick of it, it's like you're just like getting to the next day, the next moment, the next thing that you're doing, and what you're doing makes sense because it's almost like I don't know if this is the right assumption, but it's just based that it's like you're you're trying to survive the next like to get to the next. It's not about thriving. It's not about like, it's just like, how do I, how do I make this work right now? And then this right now becomes the next stage and the next stage. But like, if you look at it and think, but is that totally sustainable to live like that? And, and you're almost in a space of thinking, I don't know if it's sustainable because I'm just trying to do right now, like just this moment. And that's what can happen with addiction when you're dealing with it is like from the outside in, it's like, this is not working. Like we can't do it this way. But that those words coming from outside in are not, they're not going to create the change for, for you from the inside out, if that makes any sense. And I think Absolutely. That's, a, that's a challenge, right? When we're dealing with this in it, it's it a is. huge, it's a huge challenge. You know, I, I worked in a business that I'm, you know, the, the earth turned all the way around once every 24 hours. And the next 24 hours, you got to forget what happened the previous 24 hours because you got a whole new set of 24 hours in front of you. Yeah. And it's like that day, day after day after day, because the type of, the type of, uh, content that I was involved in happened to be tied in one way or another to current events. So whether it be news or entertainment or, 
or, you know, whatever the thing was, it was tied to current events and those current events changed every day. So you didn't have a lot of time to contemplate. I always, I, 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 I wrote an article once in a, in a broadcast magazine, uh, uh, putting forth some ideas that probably made sure that I never worked in broadcasting again. And one of them was the idea of the sabbatical. You know, we have sabbaticals in many different parts of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, that time when you are away and you can take a step back and look at a situation from where you're not in the middle of the, the, the fire every day. And of course, the minute that came out, I found out later that that pretty much I was, you know, that was not going to happen. And I shouldn't talk such nonsense and, and you shouldn't really be working around civilized people because in that world, it's like you're going from day to day to day. And, and when you, when you throw mental illness on top of that, your entire life is that way. It's how do I get through to tonight? And Lord help me if I can sleep because that may be goofed up too. And it's just like, I'm just trying to go from day to day, hour to hour, sometimes minute to minute, mm -hmm. just hanging on, trying to hang on. I think I was just joking the other day of how many times I walked out of a, of a play of, out of work, going to my car and saying, well, fooled him again. These people actually think I know what I'm doing. I don't think there are days when I didn't think I knew anything about what I was doing other than trying to survive. And I was always trying to do the best that I could. Mm -hmm. And I was raised to be, you know, keep your head down, keep plowing ahead, keep working at it. But there were all these variables that just were not part of the picture yeah. until I started to get, and you said something key a while back, is I believed that I was responsible for solving my problems that I could do it myself. And it took me 47 till I was 47 years old to finally hit a day. I remember like it was yesterday. It was Monday morning, November 17th, 2008. I'd gotten up for breakfast that morning. I had uh, two Oxycontin and four lager beers. <sighs> and I stopped. And I said, what? are you doing? Mm -hmm. This is ridiculous. And I, but it was down to the point where I had tried everything that I could think of. And, you know, employers had loved me because I could think my way through all kinds of things. I could solve problems. This was not something I could solve by myself. And it's not that I didn't try. I tried everything I could possibly think of. And I knew that morning that none of it had worked and all I was doing was getting worse and worse and worse. And that's when I made the call to a uh, uh, inpatient facility, mm -hmm. which again, you know, wonderful ignorance again. I mean, I live in South Dakota and this is not the, it's not like we have infinite choices. Kind of like, you know, yep. it's kind of like Canada South, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's I true. knew I knew one I knew one name of a treatment facility uh that was within about 30 miles uh and and I only knew it because they marketed that's the only I knew the name and uh it was it's such a it's actually kind of a comical as I look back it's kind of comical 
because I, I, I called and I, and I didn't get the place. I got a call center in New York. And this was before I knew about the business of. It's a business. Recovery. It's a lucrative business. Very. Yeah. And so, and it's like, I say, Hey, you know, I, I got this moment. I'm having my, my thing and I need to go somewhere. And then they said, well, we're so glad that you called and so glad. And we're, we're going to be here to help you. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we don't have a bed available right now. Now we will soon, but right now we don't. And okay, so the, my mind goes to, okay, Mr. Problem Solver says, okay, so what do I do in the meantime? And, uh, and, uh, the, the person on the other end said, well, uh, call back periodically and to see if there are any updates. Well, at this point in my mind, calling periodically meant picking up the phone. Uh, about every 10 minutes for the next three days, is there a spot open? 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 And, and it didn't seem out of, I didn't see anything that I, I it wasn't like, geez, what am I doing here? I'm being a little, you know, I'm being a little OCD ish here. Um, those things didn't even enter my mind. Um, and then finally, I, they called back and said, okay, we, it's Wednesday. Uh, morning and we'll have a place for you on Friday. And that's when I then had to go along to all the people in my life because I, most people aren't nearly as good at hiding things as they think they are. I'm, I, I must've been pretty good. Um, really? And, and so, yeah. And it's not like nobody knew what was going on, but most of them didn't. And, I mean, and that's the amount of effort that I put into trying to hide these things. Mm-hmm. And to a person, they went around and they were just, they couldn't, they didn't understand. But the ones that did understand were either they had been there themselves or they had had somebody in their life who was. And they had, because they had gone through a, a process where all of a sudden the light bulb went on. And it's like, oh, okay, here are the facts. Here are the real things. This is much more common. I know what it's like when I, you know, I have a father or a mother or a brother or a sister who's bipolar. They know what that process is like. They know that the sense about it is that at times it doesn't make any sense, you know, and expanding thinking beyond, you know, what you would normally think of as being logical. And I don't know, this is the way it played out in my head anyway. Um, But that, and it's even then the experience of going to uh, an inpatient facility, the curriculum that I had to work with was nothing special. But what was special were the people that I met. And that was the first time I met people who could totally relate to most of the things that I was talking about because they were there themselves. They knew they were there. Some were dealing it, dealing with it better than others. Um, but, and it's not like I connected with everybody, but I connected with enough people that all of a sudden I'm going, okay, I'm not alone here. Yeah. I know what that feels like. Uh, oh, I never have had language for that. I had a feeling, but you know, and, and as I found out later, you know, as you're teaching or training or coaching, you need language to be able to 
uh, transfer these thoughts. I was a self-taught radio host. I knew in my mind what felt right. I knew the process, but I didn't have a way to describe it until there was a gentleman. I always give him, uh, give him credit. He, he, he gave me the language, uh, to be able to do it. Bill McMahon is his name. And he, at the time he lived in San Diego, California, and he gave me the language to do things. Well, when I, when I got to this, you know, to this level, I started to discover a vocabulary that made sense to me. And by putting that vocabulary together with my own experience, I could start to make sense of it with, for myself. And then unexpectedly in the role I am in today, when I'm trying to connect with other people and to try, you know, and, and I always have this thing when I start with somebody, I always ask them two questions to start with. And because most people who are coming in, A, are not in good shape. They wouldn't be here if they were. Um, and they may, and sometimes they're in a crisis situation. Um, they're also very, they're confused. They're self-conscious and, and especially men when they come in are going, okay, I'm not supposed to tell anybody anything. So I ask these two questions because they're pretty simple, non-threatening questions. One of them is, is where did you grow up? And cause that's a pretty simple, seemingly simple thing. But when you hear somebody described about where they grew up, all of a sudden you start to hear about how they grew up. And it, at the very least, it starts generating questions in my mind of because I'm reacting to what's coming back. And then I can go from there. Uh, maybe I find out that they, they grew up everywhere. That tells me a lot. You know, if they were in a family that moved a lot, maybe they were in a military family, you know, all of a sudden it answered, it, it, it gave me a lot more fuel for, for more questions. And while you're leading in, it's, it's like they're not, they're not feeling threatened. They they aren't at the end of a a gun barrel. <laughs> like give me this answer or else. The other one is is I always ask, what do you do for fun? And sometimes the non-answer and the quizzical look that I'll get from people tells me a ton because they don't have those things or they don't perceive that they have those things in their life. And then I'm going, okay, this is somebody who probably spends a lot of time by themselves yeah. and lives in their heads. But it's it's finding, I don't know, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, which is my way, <laughs> um, is as much as anything, um, especially with men, especially with older men, um, I kind of have this little saying I've developed for myself, it's don't necessarily tell them, show them. So what they come when they come to see me, every time they come to see me is they see a man who's 62 years old, who's not afraid to talk about things and is not afraid to describe things or can understand how you're feeling. If you give me a little bit to work with um, and we can get into, you know, some of the things that I run into on a daily basis. And, and again, I'm saying this, I'm not a physician. I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm, I'm just a schmo who's been doing this stuff that I, and that, but, and hopefully have some communication skills that I can put to use. And, and I care about people and I care about people feeling well. I don't want to have to have anybody feel the way that I felt for all those years, all that pressure, all that up and down. And that's why you've created what you're doing now, right? This is like, mm -hmm. this is really like, 
you could have easily taken this experience and this learning and this time and use these skills to better yourself, to mm-hmm. change, create change in your own life. But you took it one step further and decided to create something to support other people who were in that situation. So in a nutshell, almost like the ideal person that we get to speak to on the show is you've taken your story, your experiences, which you walk through, and now you've created something to pay forward, which really was something you wished was available for you. Like there is an amazing tradition in the recovery world. There were people who appeared when I needed them the most. I'm not sure where they came from. I'm not sure where where they went. But for whatever thing, they were there when I was at the end of my rope and I had, I don't have anything else to try. And out of that comes this, if I ever get the chance to be that person for someone else, I, I want to be that person. Because I knew how important that was to me to have people there who said, I get it. I understand what you're feeling. The other thing that I love, and it's, it's, it's an offshoot of this is, you know, we live in a time where we seem to be polarized. We seem to find whether it's politically or whatever is that we divide into a camp. And if we don't agree on nine and three quarters out of 10 things, you know, you're the enemy. Mm -hmm. The one place in the world where I have seen where people leave all that stuff at the door, it doesn't matter whether you're a man or woman, young or old, rich or poor, what you do for a living while you see the world, how you go about and do all this other stuff is when you get a bunch of people together who are in recovery because you leave it at the door. You all come in as equals. And and the term I use, and I use it with great affection, is that the one thing we have, and I do this with my fellow coaches, is at the end of the day, we're all just a bunch of knuckleheads. And and I say that with great affection because our our situations are different, our ages are different, our socioeconomic levels may be different. You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of the Yoda of our group. I'm the oldest guy. And it's really all I ever wanted to be was to be Yoda. Um, but you may have, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and the people that I work with, uh, come from, they have different, uh, drug and alcohol experiences, different family experiences, different, all kinds of deals. I was lucky I didn't grow up in a traumatic situation. Trauma, as you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Trauma is serious business. It is. It and is. part of and and part of knowing what I do as a coach is to know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that if someone comes in, I mean, I can I can help a person with 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 trauma. In that, I know people who are good at it, and I can help lead this person to another person, which I didn't have. I was trying to figure it out on the fly. Because I knew nothing. Um, serious, serious mental illness. You know, the schizophrenia is the borderline personality disorders, things of that nature. I know that I'm not equipped to do that, but I can help somebody get to someone who is, mm-hmm. you know, to do that. But 
as as we go through, we may be we may look different. We're different. We're we may be different in a million different ways. But we're all knuckleheads, and we all all we have to do is have a look and a nod, and you know how the other person is feeling. It's it's if there was a way to translate that to other points of life, the world would be a much happier place right now. Because I've never seen anywhere else where all of that other stuff, all the stuff that we usually use to differentiate people, falls by the wayside. Because we're all in the same boat. We've experienced this thing. We know that the fear and the pain and all the things that go along with that, we have that shared experience. And we were not immune to it because of any other criteria. We were all there. And it is... It's a gift. And so back to doing what I do, if I can pass that along, even in some small way, then it's been a good day for me that I was able to help somebody else. And I'll I'll tell you a quick story about who I, because you never know who you're going to connect with. No, I actually say that all the time. You have no idea who you're going to connect with. I'm in this treatment facility and it is by no means a show place. It's, it's pretty ground level. The guy I connected with was 22 years old, skinhead, pats everywhere, black baggy, everything was, you could tell when he was in the, he got into the corner because he could see the rest of the room because he had to know how he was in his mind, how he was want to get out of there. Yep. Lived on the street. And uh, had a very hard time trusting people. And then here I am, somebody's dad, you know, coming in there. But we we did two things for each other. We did at least one big thing, and, and actually it was more than that. But he had carte blanche to tell me at any time when he thought I needed it to slow the F down. Slowing down. And I can go into it. I can spend a half hour on slowing down because that was part of my problem. I was going too fast. Mm -hmm. I'm built, you know, just, well, I'll finish up with this guy and then I can tell you a little bit about this. But he, when he saw me going too fast, because all of a sudden I've decided to be in treatment. So now I am just as committed and going hundred miles an hour to get better. And I missed the point that part of my problem was, is I tried to do too much at once. I needed to slow down and change the way that I thought about things, how I process things and not just about addiction, but about everything. I had to go against kind of my pre-programming that I needed to change the way that I thought. Help me immeasurably. The thing I did for him is his entire life, everybody in his life, it, it just told him that he was stupid, which is a terrible word, um, and that he would never amount to anything because he wasn't smart enough. And the person who probably told him the, the most of that was his father. And I said, I said, dude, you know, I've known a lot of people in my life. I've been a lot of places, done a lot of stuff. Um, I've dealt with uh, all kinds of people all over the globe. Some of them, you know, just amazingly creative people. 
uh, I've hired more people than I can count. Um, but I can tell you know, so I can tell you this. You're smart enough to do whatever it is that you want to do. There's no question. You're a lot smarter than anybody's been telling you. You know, you don't always have anything to compare it to. But I said, if if you really get the, you know, pick a direction and want to go, don't hesitate because you don't think that you have what it takes to do it. Because you do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know smart people when I see them, you're plenty smart to do what you want to do. Um, I saw him once. We got together for lunch about six months after we got out. Uh, and he was doing okay. And I was probably doing eh, a little better than okay. Um, that was 14 years ago. And I haven't seen him since. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's doing. I think about him every day. Every single day. He probably taught me. The slowing down thing was probably the most important thing that I've ever learned. Um, along with two other, two other things, but you know, I see that all the time, you know, I know that I'm not as a coach that I'm the right thing for everybody. And there's so much I don't know about certain things. And I do know that people come in with their own situations, but I'll, I'll tell you this is, and I think it's kind of important is that, you know, what do we have the problem, I'm sure, in your country as well as this country, is that we, we suddenly have woken up one day and we've, we've figured out that we have all these mental health issues going on, addiction issues going on, and yet at the same time, it's some of the, the – there, there's a shortage of, mm-hmm. of people that can help. Uh, they are usually at the lower end of their field. I don't know that they're necessarily always respected. Um, and it's like, we're so glad to see you here. I mean, have, we're so glad you called here. We'll see you in two months <laughs> on and on and on. And it's, it's like the worst thing in the world that can happen. So what I like about what we do at face it together is we will see you. If not immediately, uh, we will, we will set up a session within 24 and 48 hours. It's amazing. And if, and if somebody is, uh, and if somebody's in a in a crisis situation, then that's different. Then then you help them get to the front of the line as soon as you can. Um, so you can see people quickly. And when I see people come in, I always run them through before the along with those two questions. Is I'll say, okay, I've observed some things over the time that I've been doing this, and I just I just want to share them with you, and to see if you can relate to them. And. Uh, and it's amazing. Um, number one is uh, just about everybody who walks through the door, pretty darn smart. In fact, often we're too smart for our own good. Lack of intelligence is not an issue of any kind. Number two, we like to go fast. Why? Because we can. Why? Sometimes it's a lot of fun. Also, sometimes it gets us into a lot of trouble. And sometimes we learn that just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. But our default setting is to go. We like to go fast. Mm -hmm. What we don't have is patience. We don't take time to contemplate 
it's not natural for us to slow down, but we have to learn how to slow down and the skills that go along with it. How impulsive are we? How do we jump in with both hands and both feet, not knowing exactly what we're doing, that we don't think ahead of time, that we don't consider things, that we try to pack so much into our lives and our days that we're, you know, it's like we wake up every morning and there on a table are 13 tennis balls. And every day we get up and we try to juggle 13 tennis balls. And every day we fail, partially because the world record's 11. I looked it up. (laughs) But every day we try. We try to grab those tennis balls and we try and we try and we try as hard as we can and harder and harder and harder and we fail every day because we're trying the same thing every day when the secret really is, is we need to get rid of a few of those tennis balls because we got, there's too much zipping around here all at once. And how do you do that? Well, number one, slow down. Mm-hmm. Think about it. And, it, and, and what I've taken it in, in a, in a practical sense, because everybody that comes in needs a little, somebody, something a little different, but we have also have a lot more in common than, than we don't. Um, and learning how to slow down allows us to do, uh, not only to change the way that we think about things having to do with the substance, it's about changing the way that we think about everything in our lives. Our impulse is to go really fast. It's not good for us. We need to find a way to slow down. We make better choices. We, do we have a plan? If you're walking into a Christmas party, uh, you know, if your problem, let's say your problem is alcohol, um, and alcohol is easily two thirds of the people we see, um, you know, it's going to be on the other side of that door. There's going to be libations and people having a good time. That's not a matter of there may be, there will be. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to deal with that? You don't want to isolate yourself. You don't want to not participate. But what's your plan? How are you going to plan to do that? Because you know it's there. When you go in, you may be comfortable. You may not be. If you're not, what's your exit plan? How do you how do you get out of there? If you're with somebody that you're going to this event with, are do they know where you are? Do do are they in on your exit plan? You know, when you give them the, you know, the, the loose antlers, yeah, the, the sign, you know, that means, honey, I think it's time that we go. Um, so many different things that, that seem counter to how we instinctively think about things, not understanding that it, if it's our thinker that's broken or not operating correctly, you know, we have to learn these things. And it ends up being not just to deal with the addiction, it's how do we deal with all the things that anybody runs to in life, uncertainty. Uh, what are you self-aware of the fact that you're feeling this anxiety and what's bringing it on? And are there ways that that you know medication can help? It's part of it. Also, we have. It's, I, I differ a bit with the with the twelve step people. There's a lot in there that's just common sense. And it's great and it's very obvious. But there are a couple places where I differ. Um, number one is 
uh, I'm not powerless. I, I play a very important role in my being able to operate on a certain level. Is it all under my control? Probably not. I have things to learn. I need people in my life to do that. But I also need to understand myself. You know, I've, I, I found something very amazing when I went to treatment and that is, is when I stopped using all the other substances in my life. But, you know, those medications, they work pretty well. You know, once I finally got, who knew, you know, who knew? So you make better choices when you can feel what's going on. And I know I have a responsibility. You know, I used to be like this. And now I'm more, sorry, my, my video is not going. Now I'm kind of like this. It's still there. I can still feel when things are coming on. And I know, okay, I have some control over some things. When I feel a, a mood change coming on or something, you know, that seems major, I always go, okay, what, what do I have control over here? How's my sleep? How's my eating? How's my exercise? Because I know they all have uh, an effect. I need to do those things first. I need to check and see where I am. Have I strayed away from the new habits that I've learned? Am I going back into some of my old habits? Um, I have a responsibility for that. Uh, I, I, you know, it's although sometimes when it's, you know, when you have an episode coming on, you just go, wee, it's really fun when you're on the high end. Well, it may be fun for you, but it isn't necessarily fun for the people in your life. So it's like, okay, I have responsibility here. What do I do? What are the things that I can do? One of those concepts we talked back to, uh, uh, the, you can be smart about some things and completely naive about other ones is, uh, well, this is another thing. Short-term memory starts to go <laughs> after a while. Um, sorry about that. Um, oh shoot. What was it? I'll come to it in a moment. In any case, it's, it's a combination of things and with coaching, it, part of it is, is just to go, you're not weird. You're not strange. You're not alone. You have lots of company and that things can be complicated, but they can and do get better for a lot of people. And the other thing I tell them, and this is probably where as a coach, there's certain things I can do maybe that other professionals cannot do is I tell them, here's why I'm here. I'm here because there were people who showed up for me. You've come in to meet with me. You, you're free to go to, to stop coming or go see another coach or whatever. But one thing that will not stop is you're now one of my people. Mm-hmm. You're one of my, one of my guys. You will always be one of my guys. It matters to me that you get better because I know how it feels when you're not. You matter to me. For a lot of people, especially men again, and I, and, but it, it goes, a lot of these things I've said about men, they, they go for women just as, just as easily is that maybe people have never had a person in their life that said, I believe in you. Mm-hmm. I know you can do this. I see the things in you and I'm doing this. Not because it's a paycheck. I'm doing this because it matters because I know what it feels like to be in your chair. And it's a terrible, scary, awful feeling. Yeah. So, you know, from this point forward, 
you are no longer alone. You are, you're on my team. You know, you can't get rid of me that easily. And I'll be here and I'll do what I can. You know, I'm not a miracle worker. I don't have any secret magic potion. Um, but you matter. You, you getting better matters to me. Sometimes it's the first time they've ever heard anything like that. I was that. just going to say that sometimes that is the very first time they've heard it. Or there's something about the benefit of hearing that from somebody you don't know, like that you don't know, because maybe you've heard people in your life said it, but you also weren't ready to receive it or you didn't believe them or it was whatever that is. So there's, there's this benefit of it being somebody you don't know, like very well, and you're just getting to know. I, I love everything that you're sharing and I just, I appreciate it and how you're continuing to pay that forward, how you're serving like so many different communities and people globally. Like that's just one of the beautiful things about, um, Zoom platform, online platform. And -hmm. you're right. It was a blessing of 2020 has allowed us to connect with people from all over the world that we would never even cross paths with. So now it is you know, being able to show somebody what is possible, how they can create change. And I like this piece on, you know, slowing down because the other thing that happens when we slow down is we get present. And one of the things I can, I can say, and I've spoken about many times is when we were in the throes of dealing with substance abuse in our kids, I didn't know where to live because I would live in replaying the past nonstop. I would live in fear of what the future was going to look like. And the present was incredibly painful. So it's like, I just didn't know where to go. I had no Mm -hmm. idea where to go. And so by slowing down, we can bring ourselves back into that present moment and being able to, you know, put those practices in place as you're sharing them. And they are stepping stones, right? It is like, it's, it's stacking tiny wins and habits every single day that can start to make a difference. But also I think a big piece of it is not doing it alone. I really think this, and I think that it's such a blessing that that coworker you had years ago had the guts to openly say and speak something to me. That's like massive courage. Like it really is. Made all the difference in the world. Life changing, right? Like life changing. And this is the power of sharing our stories and being able to, you know, put our story out there because it it just have no idea what door it can open for somebody else. And most of us who do that in one way, shape or form is because we spent so much of our life feeling like we were alone and isolated. And we know that's not true, but the only way we can change that narrative is to keep doing what we're doing. And so I, I appreciate everything that you're sharing and what you do and how is like, just how is the best way for people to connect and follow you and learn more about Face It Together? Go to the website, wefaceittogether.org. And uh, uh, wefaceittogether.org. And on there is a very simple thing to just put your, you know, it's your contact info, and we'll, we'll get back to you within 24, 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And usually it's less than that. Um and, and then we start from there. We have a, uh, a, a group that we call our first impressions people. And that is, is there are people who will be that first person who calls and if someone, you know, and we have, and it's, it could come from around the world or it can be somebody walking in off the street. And we always find there's somebody here, especially if they come in off the street that it's like, well, come on in. Let's start to talk about stuff. 
mm-hmm. and uh you know to see them immediately or as soon as possible um but that's the easiest way because it'll get you right to our first impressions people they'll go through um you know kind of the the uh one one of the things that I that I really like about this and I'll I'll try to make it quick is is that in the United States if you have health insurance you have all kinds of options you have a lot of different stuff you can do if you don't have health insurance uh you have options they might not be the most attractive they might not be the right thing for you i like that what we do is so cost effective one thing that that baffles me a little bit is i know three things the older i get the fewer things i know to be sure uh, certain Mm-hmm. You know, it gets grayer rather than black. At, at 20, I had the world figured out. Oh, Not so that much true? Now. Yeah. So I know three things to be true. Number one, people hate change. Number two, insurance companies hate to spend money. Number three, it is never, ever too cold for ice cream. I know those three things to be so. The second one, the amount of money that insurance companies pay out because it's like, okay, you're 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 have an addiction, you're an alcoholic, ugly word. You're a drug addict, ugly phrase. Very ugly. Yeah. Um uh and you need to go to treatment to get better. Mm-hmm. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um not it's like if you you broke your arm, okay, you went to the ER, um does everybody who breaks their arm, do they need to go to ICU? No, they don't. Do some people need to go to intensive care? Sure. There are a lot of things that will happen in life where you need every ounce of care you can get. There's other things that happen in your life that are going, no, you don't need quite that level of thing. But the thing, but you do need help. Your problems are real. The things in, you know, the, 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 the way that this the substance and things are negatively affecting your life and the lives of those around you are very real. But I find a lot of the people who come in to see us aren't that far off. They need things. And the problems they have are real, but they aren't that far off. Some of them are much more complex. And again, the best thing I can do is try to get them to somebody who can help. But it's amazing. How quickly, for some people, you can really make a difference. And it doesn't cost very much mm-hmm. at all. These insurance industry has not recognized that yet in this country. And I think, you know, it's not that coaching is going to solve every problem with mental health or addiction in the world. Of course it's not. But I think it's an option that has been missing. Mm. And that is, it's, it, you, in coaching, you almost have nothing to lose. If you're a good coach, now not everybody can coach, but, you know, if you know what kind of what your limitations are, and I mean, and you do have to be trained and not just, you know, not just anybody who's in recovery is going to go be a good coach. It's there's, there's more to it than that. And finding good coaches is is a challenge. It's not impossible, but it's, it's a challenge. But there's a lot of people who are kept away from help because they cannot afford it. And the thing that when coaching works, it's amazing how many people can be helped that don't need 
to go away for 30 days or 60 or 90 or whatever. Some people do. Some people benefit from a lot of things. There's a lot I don't know about things, but I do know best compliment I ever received. And I think about it and it makes me smile because I always ask about three sessions in, is this helping at all? Is what we're doing useful for you? Because I don't want to waste your time. I, and, and if I'm not on the right track, you need to tell me. Um, and I said, so is, is this of use to you? And the guy stopped and he said, well, the only thing I know for sure is when I leave, I feel better than when I came in. And I said, that's quite possibly the, 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 the most gracious comment I've ever had compliment from anybody. Mm-hmm. And af- after all, isn't that kind of what it's about? You know, and it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to cost $35,000 a month. Not for everybody. No, it's actually, that's, that is something that still infuriates me. But, um, just because I know I, I've been in a situation where we were like at a point of looking for something. And I mean, this is eight years ago and it was coming up at like 10, 15 K a month. And I'm like, what? I don't even know how. So there's like, And I just, I want to cover this piece in a sense that like be open to different areas and different ways that you can get and receive support. Because I know for me that, like I said, I kept pushing. I found the crisis counselor, very helpful for me, very helpful. And then I found some coaching and mentorship, to be honest. And I, that, that changed the game for me. And that really did help. And so I really believe in it that it it can be incredibly life-changing and life-giving for people in the right circumstances. And again, like you said, I think it's really important as long as the coach also understands their limitations because you're absolutely you have to like you have to have limitations. You're you can't possibly serve and support every single person with everything. No. It's just and, not not possible. And that's you know, and I always see we'll see that in the world. It's like, oh, forget all that other stuff. This is what you need. Well. You don't know that it's that it's that there are people are in a wide range of situations and hopefully there can be a wider range of different kinds of help. It's just a matter of matching up with one or more Mm -hmm. of these, these situations. I mean, you know, I always talk about building a team. Mm -hmm. Um, and even when we're isolated, we think we're alone. No, you've got people on your team. Number one, if you come in to see me, I'm automatically on your team. You got you can't get rid of me. Um, number two, do you have a spouse, a loved one in your life? Do you still have parents in your life? Do you have people who care about you? Do you have a primary care physician? Mm-hmm. Primary care is really important, under underutilized, I'm afraid, here anyway. Um, that person's part of your team. Um my it, it took me forever to find a psychiatrist that understood me. She's a physician's assistant who has an expertise in this area. Um, I'm to the point right now where she wants to retire and I'm not going to let her. <laughs> Be, but, and, and she's, she's cut down to two days a month, mm-hmm. two days a month, but I made the cut. So I'm really hey. happy about that. Um, but you know, it's, these are all people who are part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's all about not being isolated, that these are all people, they want the same thing for you that you want for, for everyone else. And that's to feel better yeah, and to do better. And, 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 
you know, we, we do one thing here. I'll just give a quick plug for our loved ones program because the, you know, the people who are affected by people who are struggling and that is a whole nother thing, especially if you don't come from that perspective. And if your if your acknowledgement of mental illness and addiction comes only from pop culture, we got a long ways to go. And quite often, people are doing the best that they can, or they would go, "Okay, if it were me that was in this situation, this is what I what I would want to hear." Uh, usually, or quite often, it's exactly the opposite. So you know, it's like, okay. You, you both, your loved ones, you and your loved ones want the same thing. You want you to feel better and you want there to be less chaos in your life. Mm-hmm. How you get there, mm-hmm. it might take a little bit of work, but you need to do that. You need to get on the same page because we all need the best team we can come up with. I'm glad that you said that. And I do want to, I, I did want to plug that piece of it because, mm-hmm. um, I would say probably one of the number one questions I get is like, how do I fix my kids? How do I fix my, and I'm like, it's actually not your job. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm it's, it's your job to lead yourself so that like you actually might get to the same end result, but you're not going to get there by the same way you've been trying to do it for years and you know, it's not working. So I know it's hard. It, it I've walked it. It's, it's really excruciating to watch and see, but you can get to a space that you desire to, you just might end up taking very different roads to get there. And the other piece of, I, when it comes to dealing with addiction, you've said so many different things that I would love to just piggyback and say, like, speak of it as addiction, not the addict. I just, it's just not, it, nobody changes a behavior when you apply shame to it. Not one person on this entire planet will change anything when you shame them into it. So it is a behavior and calling it addiction makes a big difference in how you approach it. And so that can take that shame and judgment out of it as well. And it is, it's, it's an experience of, you know, how can you help to support them, but also like make sure you're putting some boundaries to respect your own space at the same time. It's a really tricky, it's a really tricky thing as, as a parent who has dealt with this. And, you know, I'm there to support. I often say it that, um, if people say, how do I fix it? I'm like, you, you actually can't fix it. That's not what your job is. And so I had to come up with this little thing that worked for me was that my job was not to push or pull them through life. My job, I'll walk beside you and I will cheer you on and I will support you a hundred percent of the way. But That's my job I like is, is not to push and pull you. And I'm going to clarify that even one step further. Even if I had never dealt with addiction, my job was still not to push or pull through life. And I think that is a, a mistake that a lot of parents can easily fall into. I say mistake. I think it's a trap. It's an, a thing they can easily fall into that it's their job to fix and control and push or pull and manage. Like, and it's like, if you're doing that, then they never know how to make a decision on their own. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to raise you know, humans that can make some decisions on their own, at least to know what to do when things do go wrong. And it's an, it's interesting. It's another whole caveat that I could go down, but I just wanted to share that piece of it because when it comes to supporting people who are walking this path, I'll tell you, 
it, my life changed when I stopped trying to fix their behavior and put the mirror back on myself and recognize what am I doing that's not helping. And I got pretty defensive in the beginning because I'm like, well, it's not my fault. Look at what they're doing. But it was recognizing that no, this, it does impact all of us. And so we all have a role in how we navigate this time. So whether you are someone who's listening to this episode and you are the person who is struggling with mental health addiction um, and wanting that support, or you are a family member that is walking alongside someone, there's definitely tons of value in this episode for you to recognize that like we all collectively have to come together to make a difference. This is not an isolation of, you know, trying to get them to fix their behavior. So I just wanted to share that piece. Nope. I'm with you all the way. That's again, well said, very well said. It's a, it's a, it's a road. That's for sure. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, do I wish that I didn't have to have walked down it? 10,000%. Of course I do. Yeah. Yep. But it also opened up so many different things that I feel it was, you know, we, I believe that we're put on the paths that we're meant to walk on and we just get to choose what we do with them. And for some people, you know, we can stay in that space of being very angry and no change, or we can look at it and say, wait, can I do something with it? And I'm probably much like you. There was a moment where it was like, if you can help me, whatever higher power, whatever you want to talk to, if you can help me to navigate this, I promise to pay it forward. I just promise to do something good with it. And I think that's what you're doing. So I I love this conversation and this connection and um, cannot wait to put this out and continue to support others. So I could talk to you forever because I know that we have, <laughs> I know we have a lot of similarities here, um, but I just want to thank you again for being here. And I want to ask you one, um, my last question is always like, what lesson in life are you most grateful for? It's one that came to me late. I may have mentioned it earlier. I wish I would have figured it out a lot earlier. It's not hard to understand. It just never crossed my mind. Some things I have control over and some things I don't. And uh, I spent a lot of my life looking out to the future because I wanted to take care of people, people who are under my charge, my family, my team at work. Um, I wanted them to have room to be good and to do do their thing. Um, so I took it upon myself that everything coming down the pipe was my problem to solve. And I drove myself berserk trying to fix everything. Yeah. Even if some of it, a good deal of it, there was nothing I could do to make a difference. But it's a, but I'm a lot better off when I can think about things that I do have, uh, some influence over and concentrate on those to take those, the things that I do that I can't, where I can make a difference either for myself or for somebody else and focus on those. There are things that, you know, you wish you could fix. You wish you could make things better, but we just don't have that control to do it. But there are a lot of things we do. Focus on those. Some things you got control over, some things you don't. Learn to know the difference. I think that has been one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my life. 
So I'm so grateful that you shared that. Um, when we can start to take like ownership, owner choices of the things we can control, we can create massive change in our life. Mm-hmm. And it's like letting go of the things we can't control, which is probably 95% of what we spend our effort on. And the other 5% that could actually change the game for us, we just have to shift the focus back to those things that we can control. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much for such an incredible conversation. I'm grateful that our paths have crossed and that we're able to put this, all of this support content value out to people who are walking this path. Thank you. It's, uh, you know, it's it, a lot of this stuff and I'm, I'm not a rocket scientist <laughs> about these either. things made, you know, I always, I always tell people, you know what? I had to screw up a lot to get this wise <laughs> about things. And my job is to help you not do the same things that I did. So you'll have plenty of room to make your own mistakes. Perfect. <laughs> but you know, it's, but it's, we're all in this thing together. And I thank you for the opportunity to do it. And uh, it's one of the great gifts of doing this is the people I meet. Mm-hmm. And I met a nice one today. Oh, I'm going to receive that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.